One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Before we start, here's a reminder. As a valued listener to our podcast, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist using the code POD20. Go to newscientist.com to subscribe and enter the discount code POD20 at checkout for full access to the wealth of articles and videos available to all our subscribers. Hello, welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm our podcast editor. And I'm Penny Sarchet, New Scientist News Editor. Joining us today is New Scientist staff writer Graham Lawton. Hello, Graham. Hello. On this week's show, we look at the dawn of a new era of space travel and we review what the science says about staying safe as coronavirus lockdown restrictions ease in many countries around the world. We've also got news of a very odd bumblebee behaviour and on a totally different scale, we discuss how a close brush with another galaxy had massive implications for our own existence. But we start with the small matter of averting the greatest crisis of our times. And by that, of course, I mean climate change. It might be odd to talk about this while we're in the middle of the disaster of the coronavirus pandemic. But our response to the pandemic shows that it's possible to change our behaviour on a massive scale. Basically, we bent the curve on the pandemic. Can we do it on climate change? Graham, you've been looking into this for this week's magazine. Yeah, I have. And as you say, there's been a lot of talk about the pandemic being an opportunity really to restructure our entire way of life along much more sustainable lines. Yeah, I I saw that the European Union, it's updated seven year budget. It's a trillion euro budget and it has a 750 billion euro recovery plan. And both those have significant green strings attached. So 25 percent is earmarked to go to some sort of climate friendly investment. And I just saw that the boss of BP uh, says the coronavirus crisis will accelerate the company's transformation to become carbon neutral. Yeah. And, you know, that's all evidence that, you know, believe it or not, there was growing acceptance from governments, from business and from civil society that we got to tackle the climate change and biodiversity loss and the wider environmental crisis. And, you know, the virus is clearly part of the same problem. So on the magazine, we were wondering who we might let's talk to about this. And we decided to have a long conversation with Pateri Talas. Now, he's the Secretary General of the World Meteorological Organization. Um, and people may not be too familiar with the WMO, but actually it's one of the most important and influential scientific bodies in the world. It's a UN agency, a bit like the World Health Organization, but for weather and climate. And it co-founded the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And it does a lot of the basic monitoring of the state of the climate. Uh, Talas is quite a controversial figure, isn't he? Well, somewhat. I mean, he gave an interview to a newspaper in his native Finland last year in which he criticised climate alarmism and some of the research on tipping points. And that kind of naturally was seized on by climate deniers um, who said, you know, here's a leading figure saying that some of the science is wrong. He says he was simply arguing that we have to stick to rigorous 
climate science. So he's pretty hard headed about this. But anyway, I spoke to him from his office in Geneva and he said, yes, he agreed that the pandemic is a historic opportunity. And it's also proved that, you know, when disaster strikes, the world can act quickly and make radical changes and accept big sacrifices. Yeah, it does feel like we're on the cusp of something, doesn't it? We've got investors and governments and they, they seem to be teetering on the edge of coming down in favour of renewables, but we've not yet had that decisive change. Uh, the only thing I worry about is that we've had to invoke these big changes this year. We've had to do it to limit, uh, to avoid and limit immediate deaths. And they're deaths of people around us. Uh, but with climate change, the deaths are, are further away, both in the future and they're out of sight in other countries, generally in, in poorer countries. So I worry that the commitment to big changes is going to fall away. Yeah, that's a big worry, of course. And uh, But as Talas points out, the change we need on climate is in many ways a lot smaller and less drastic than the ones that we've had to make right now. Yeah, what does that mean, smaller? Because surely the changes to tackle climate change are, are going to be bigger. Overall, yes, but they're not as drastic. What Talos means is that we have more time. We still have several years to transform our energy systems, transport, industry and so on to get to where we need to get to. But as you said on the show a couple of weeks ago, I think what we're seeing now is with reductions in CO2 emissions will not actually impact climate change significantly. You know, CO2 is so long lived in the atmosphere and the reductions we've seen are such a small amount of what's needed every year for the next 30 years. And so, yeah, Talos also accepts that we could just blow it and go back to business as usual. So we need activism and leadership to keep up the pressure on governments and on investors. And we need more demonstrations of the economic value the kind of economic bounce that we can get by investing in green infrastructure. Yeah, we'd need all those, you know, but after speaking to Talas, I was on the phone to him for over an hour, you know, he's a no-nonsense character, he's got real scientific clout, and he has access to world leaders and the top brass at the United Nations. And after speaking to him, I felt a little bit more optimistic that some of the world's most powerful people actually get it this time. But of course, we could still blow it. But then let's look on the bright side. If we do blow it, there will be another pandemic along sooner or later, so we can have another bite at the cherry. <laughs> yeah, I was speaking to a climate scientist recently, and uh, he made the point that our failure to deal with climate change so far has allowed people to attach their own agendas to what they see as the solution. And he was saying how, well, that makes the problem even more complicated than it already looks. So, you know, we've heard people saying we need to overthrow capitalism. So rather than just transitioning the entire world economy to zero carbon sources of energy, we also need to completely overhaul the global economic system. But if you look at emissions in the last few years, they plateaued. Carbon emissions plateaued in 2014 to 2016 and again in 2018 to 2019. But during that time, the economy carried on expanding. So it's easy to rail against capitalism, but it just makes things more complicated than we need to. I do think, though, um, there's something about consumerism, especially hyper-consumerism among the relatively rich members of the world. And I, I can see that for a lot of us, um, the lockdown restrictions might have changed some of that. So for quite a large number of people, it was just normal to hop on a plane for a break once a month for the weekend. And you can't imagine that returning to being the norm for quite a long time. So that sort of gives me hope that it's kind of reset some of those really sort of climate damaging norms, but perhaps, I mean, 
imagine now people flying all over the world just to have a 30 minute meeting in an airport when now that we're all so used to telecommunicating that gives me quite a lot of hope yeah i mean talos himself says that he thinks hyper consumerism is one of the things that might change as a result of this because people have just learned that they don't actually need it and uh, international meetings have happened by Zoom and on video technology. And he thinks that that might be the best change that comes out of this pandemic. What do you think about how likely is it now that um, a lot of big businesses are having to rethink their plans for the next year or two anyway? Are you hopeful that that will mean that they really do accelerate their plans to transition to a greener way of working sooner than they otherwise would have done i'm hopeful but i'm not confident if that if that makes sense i think mm. that an awful lot of people will be in such terrible state uh, financially a lot of businesses will be in such terrible state financially that their immediate priority will be to get back on their feet and that there's a window of opportunity here but i think if we allow economic recovery to dominate the conversation for three to six months then I think we will just simply slip into our old habits again. We really have to hope that we don't have to wait for yet another pandemic before we really get this going then. Indeed. Now it's time for life form of the week. Penny what is it this time? Well we're big fans of bees at New Scientist so this week it just had to be bumblebees due to a new finding that they can actually force plants to flower early if they're struggling to find food. When I heard about this my first thought was how Every organism seems to rain down the pressure and the horror onto lower <laughs> levels. Either of you read Madeline Miller's Circe, uh, the big yeah. best Yeah. I, so, actually, it was the first book I read on lockdown. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. So I've just read it. And maybe that's it's because of that. But, um, you know, that's about the Greek goddess Circe. And there's a line in it about the great chain of fear. So Zeus raining down fear on the other gods and the gods to lesser gods to mortal humans to slaves to animals and so on that's what it made me think of this bees thing but go on bees can force plants to flower yeah they they really seem to and and it's really quite bizarre so a team in switzerland found that when bumblebees are deprived of food they start piercing small holes in the leaves of plants and by damaging plants in this way they seem to trigger them into flowering earlier than they otherwise would and and that provides pollen for the insects to then go and collect that is so weird how effective is it well, it really does seem to work. So in experiments, they found that this leaf damage uh, seemed to make black mustard plants flower over two weeks earlier and tomato plants started flowering a month early. So that's a really neat trick. Bumblebees normally come out of hibernation in early spring to feast on the pollen of new flowers, but they can often emerge too early and, and then struggle to find food. And do we know how leaf damage makes plants flower? So that's that's the big question. Uh, we don't actually know. Uh, generally speaking, though, we know that stress can push plants to flower sooner. Uh, that's an evolutionary survival strategy. So when the going gets tough, it makes sense to hurry up and reproduce so that you don't miss out on your chance on passing genes on to the next generation. OK, so if I'm bored of waiting for plants in my garden to flower, can I just puncture holes in the leaves and get them to flower? I was pleased that the team did actually try that, not not in their gardens, but to see if, if they could replicate it themselves. Um, but it just didn't work. And, and that's really intriguing in itself because it suggests that there's something about the way that the bumblebees do this that is special. Uh, so one idea is maybe they inject special chemicals in their saliva into the leaves when they pierce them. And, and that might have some kind of effect. And what about climate change? Because there's been a lot of concern about how climate change may disrupt the timing of events in spring 
so young birds could hatch before insects are available to feed on and insects can emerge before there are plants ready to sustain them. Does this mean bumblebees will be okay with this trick? Obviously we can't say for sure and, and they're probably still in some danger but it, it is really sort of great to know that they at least have this trick up their sleeves for coping with this kind of problem. Time out, we want to tell you about a live online event on Thursday the 4th of June. It's called Alien Oceans on Earth and Beyond. Join Kevin Hand, an astrobiologist from NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, as he guides you around the best places to find life in the solar system. It may be that the small ice-covered moons of Jupiter and Saturn harbour some of the most habitable real estate in our solar system. Life loves liquid water and these moons have lots of it. Some of these moons are just so fascinating. I think I'd probably say that Enceladus is definitely my favourite. Oh, I don't know what my favourite one is, but yeah, they are. You can find all about them on Thursday the 4th of June at our live online event. Visit newscientist.com slash events for more details. Next up, have a listen to this. And lift off, the final lift off of Atlantis on the shoulders of the space shuttle. America will continue the dream. Roger roll, Atlantis. Rowan, what was that? That was the space shuttle Atlantis taking off in 2011. It was the last time a crewed spacecraft launched from the United States. That uh, You heard the commentator on there saying, America will continue the dream. But the thing is, the dream has been on hold for all this time since then, since 2011. But now the dream is back on? It is. Elon Musk's company SpaceX is about to launch a spacecraft to the International Space Station. And it'll be the first time in history that astronauts have reached low Earth orbit on a commercially built spacecraft. So it really does mark the start of commercial space travel. And that's why I'm excited about it. Uh, it was supposed to launch on Wednesday, but the launch was scrubbed because of poor weather. Scrubbed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, rather than say delayed, they needed a more macho word. So they say scrubbed. <laughs> the next launch window is on Saturday. So NASA have paid SpaceX huge amounts of money for this, haven't they? They have. Uh, they've also given money to Boeing. Uh, but it still worked out much cheaper than if NASA did it themselves. So the space shuttle, for all its brilliance and iconic status, was unbelievably expensive. Each launch cost $1.8 billion in today's money. That's just one launch. But SpaceX is charging NASA $55 million for each launch, um, and it's going to be able to get that down a lot cheaper. Elon Musk has said as low as $2 million per launch, which is ludicrously cheap if it can get that low. Even if it gets anywhere near that, it's unbelievably cheap. Uh, the best way of describing what's happening is that NASA has now decided to rent a taxi instead of owning their own car. And renting a taxi is much cheaper than owning your own car. And in just the same way, renting a ride in someone else's spacecraft is much cheaper than building your own. Either of you two, did you follow the attempted launch on Wednesday evening, Graham? Uh, actually, my, my dad asked me where... Uh, to look for it in the sky and I had to admit I had absolutely no idea it was orbital dynamics are not my strong suit. <laughs> um, I, weirdly I actually had to miss it due to another commitment which is just not a phrase that I get to use very often no, these days. No. <laughs> <laughs> I do have my concerns though that by outsourcing space travel um, isn't NASA potentially putting itself at the mercy of private firms some of which are led by let's say quite controversial figures yeah um, like surely in the long run this this could mean that they have less control and, and may be forced into paying higher costs if they have no other choice well 
I think that's built into the contracts because um, NASA are still trying to build their own launch system, for, but that's for deep space and for the moon. And when they do it themselves, it's massively overpriced and massively delayed. You know, we were talking earlier about overthrowing capitalism, or I was. This is an example of the market finding a solution in a cheaper way. Uh, the boss of NASA, Jim Brindenstein, says it's about commercialising low Earth orbit. By doing this, NASA has effectively ceded low Earth orbit to commercial companies. Um, and that allows the agency to concentrate on bigger things, what it sees as bigger things, like going back to the moon. Uh, it's planning to go there in 2024. Yeah, but as well as that, one of the big deals about this is that it allows the US to take back control of rocket launches from Russia, right? Yeah. So for years now, America's had to pay Russia to get its astronauts to the space station. Um, overall, it's paid more than $4 billion to the Russians for this. And now NASA can keep that money and invest it in other things. And also the Soyuz rocket used by the Russians, it only holds three people and the new SpaceX Dragon capsule can hold seven. Does this take us closer towards tourism in space? Yeah, it really does. SpaceX, as well as other commercial space flight companies, such as Blue Origin and Virgin Galactic, are all planning space tourism ventures. As we've already said, I, f I feel bad enough about regular flying. So the idea of starting this whole new massively carbon intensive industry for the ultra rich is, is not exactly appealing right now. No, I, I can see that. Um, I guess you could argue that this sort of development will help fund technology and infrastructure that will help renewable energy take over. Um, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk have both said things to this effect. But the fact remains that they also both want to develop space travel. They both want to go to the moon. And Musk, of course, wants to go to Mars. It's a new kind of space race between commercial companies rather than superpowers. Let's give the last word to one of the astronauts set to pilot the Dragon spacecraft, Bob Benken. He also actually flew on that last space shuttle mission in 2011. He said, we set the future up to continue to blossom. That's our sci-fi alert. As you know, the sci-fi alert sounds when we have a story in the news this week that has already been written about in science fiction. Rowan. This one has spooked me a little. Um, you know this thing about contingency in evolutionary biology, right? Yeah, so this is the idea that small events can have huge consequences in the future for the way that life evolves. That's right. So, for example, if uh, a certain group of species goes extinct, it obviously shuts off their entire future potential and entire groups of animals have gone extinct in the distant past and evolution has taken a different course as a result of that. This was one of Stephen Jay Gould's most influential ideas, wasn't it? Yeah, so the Harvard paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould, he used to say that if you rewound the tape of evolutionary biology, you'd get a different outcome each time because basically the future is contingent on the past. So I'm used to this idea happening in evolutionary time over hundreds of millions of years on this planet, but this week we've seen evidence it might happen on a cosmic scale over billions of years. Astronomers have discovered that the galaxy Sagittarius orbits our galaxy, the Milky Way, and sometimes it gets quite close. And about 5.7 billion years ago, Sagittarius brushed past our galaxy with only a gap of a mere 26,000 light years in between. <laughs> that, that doesn't sound like too scary of a near miss. No, no, it's not exactly close. But the gravitational tug does seem to have had this massive effect on our galaxy, and it started a period of star formation in the Milky Way. 
and one of the astrophysicists who's been studying this says it's like throwing a stone in a lake and the Milky Way was nice and calm and then Sagittarius passed by and created ripples in the galaxy's density so some areas became more dense and started forming stars more efficiently and it could be even that our own solar system may owe its existence to this disturbance in the force created by Sagittarius 5.7 billion years ago. Wow, so a random brush with another galaxy might have birthed our own solar system. Yeah, that's the idea. And that's the thing I found a bit spooky. Cosmology often has the effect of putting things into perspective and showing us what a minuscule speck we are in comparison to the rest of the universe. And I guess this adds to it. It's another twist on that. So I'm intrigued to know what your sci-fi link is here. Yeah, it's a, it's a tenuous one. But if you let me have mythology count as sci-fi, I can do it. Oh yeah, we'll allow it. But are you taking us back into Greek mythology again? Yeah, I, I, I actually did try to do that, uh, to, to think of a way of getting the Greek god of the sun into this, but I couldn't make it work. Every culture has its own myths about how the sun came into existence. And the one that seems most relevant here is from ancient China. In ancient Chinese mythology, there were 10 suns in the sky. At dawn, uh, the solar goddess would take one of them across the sky in her chariot and the other nine would go off to play. But one day the other nine were bored and all started playing in the sky at the same time. So the 10 suns in the sky caused intense global warming and catastrophic climate change. And it was only until an archer called Ho Yi shot and killed nine of the suns that the climate was restored. So that's it. It was random chance leading to the existence of our sun. It doesn't get much more tenuous than that. Thanks. <laughs> Many countries around the world are now starting to lift some of their coronavirus restrictions, meaning some people are returning to work or school and getting out and about more. Penny, you've been looking at how best to keep safe. Yes, in this week's issue of New Scientist, the writer Linda Geddes delved into what the data says so far about how and where the virus is transmitted and how to interpret all of this if you're looking to keep your chances as low as possible of, of catching the virus if you need to start going out and about more. And what's the main takeaway? I think the the thing that really struck me the most is just how much more likely you are to catch it in the home um, if, if you end up in the home of someone who is infected. So, for example, a study in China found that the risk of a coronavirus infection being passed on at home or by repeated contact with the same infected person was roughly 10 times greater than the risk of passing it on in a hospital and 100 times greater than doing it on public transport. So you can really see why a ban on visiting other people's homes is still in place in many countries, including the UK. Right. In England, you're allowed to meet up with one person from outside your household, provided you do it on the outside and you maintain a distance of two metres. Is the science around that sound? So it's actually tough to say for sure. It really does look like it's harder to catch the virus outside than inside, but it may still be possible. The two metres guideline is based on the fact that large virus packed droplets usually settle within only a few metres from their source. But there is still an open question about smaller droplets. These can travel much further, but then they also will contain less virus particles and also be more easily dispersed by the open air currents. So we don't really know yet whether these can cause infection or not. And what about schools? Uh, They're due to reopen for some age groups in England on the 1st of June. And I know a lot of parents are wondering whether it's safe to send their kids back. 
Yeah, so this is a really tough one. Uh, the data still isn't clear here, largely because many countries closed their schools relatively early on in the pandemic. So it's difficult to know what effect schools have on virus transmission and, and what would have happened if, if, that, if the schools hadn't been closed. In terms of child safety, the data does seem to suggest that uh, children are less likely to get the infection. And when they do, they are less likely to develop serious symptoms. But um, contrary to what some people in some reports have said towards the beginning, they're not immune to infection. Um, Children can catch it. And a small minority of children do become seriously ill with COVID-19. What about reports that some infected children are developing this weird new syndrome? Yeah, there does seem to be a newly identified inflammatory syndrome affecting some of the children who get ill with COVID-19. We really don't know much about it yet, but it seems to be affecting a very small number of children and almost all of them are getting better. As well as child safety, though, another issue is whether schools could become hubs for spreading infection. That's something that we really see with seasonal flu. So the virus can spread around a classroom and then go on to seed outbreaks in in many of the children's families. And it It's possible that the coronavirus does spread at schools, uh, but the data so far suggests that it really doesn't spread to the same extent that flu does um, in, in these environments. It's such a difficult decision for parents to make. I heard Tim Spector from King's College London. He was asked if if he would send his kids back to school at this time with this sort of uncertainty around. And he said he would because otherwise he'd go crazy. And I have to say that's right now how I'm feeling. Yeah, it's a it's a really difficult one and and parents will make different decisions and and one thing to really bear in mind is is what it means for the rest of the family. So if a parent or a grandparent is vulnerable or or deemed vulnerable to coronavirus for any reason, it, it's up to parents to weigh that up and it might just not seem worth the risk to your family at this point. That's all for this week. Thanks to our guest Graham Lawton and thanks to you for listening do tell your friends about our show. Remember, you can read all about these stories and much more at newscientist.com and there's 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you use the code POD20. That's right, POD20 at checkout gets you your subscription discount. Do also please vote for New Scientist Weekly in the British Podcast Awards Listener's Choice category. Go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote to support your favourite science podcast. Yes, that's britishpodcastawards.com forward slash vote. Do get in touch on Twitter at New Scientist Pod or email us at podcast at newscientist.com. New episodes go live each Friday. Subscribe to our show at the usual place you get your podcasts. And until then, take care. Goodbye. Bye. This is a Right Angles production. You can find out more by visiting rightangles.global.